Hello, uh, this is Robert Rickover at Body Learning, and today my guest is Jean Doe Massoero, who is an Alexander Technique teacher living in Montpelier, France. We've been doing a series of interviews about the um, influence of Francois Delsart on F. Matthias Alexander, and we're going to continue that interview to those interviews today, we're going to continue to talk a bit about the early period of Alexander's uh, teaching primarily and how Delsart's ideas uh, influenced that and what Alexander did not have of Delsart's ideas and how that affected um, Alexander's approach to teaching as well. Jean Doe, welcome to the show. Yes, thank you. Good thank evening. you, thank you. Good evening, yes. Um, so if I could, it, what I'd like to do is very briefly recap a little of what we've covered and yes, then go on for there. That that we know, we have, we have solid, we know for sure that Alexander uh, held himself out as a teacher of the Delsart method. Uh, I believe in Melbourne we have the the advert and so on. And we we know he was. We know that Delsart's younger brother was living in Tasmania and taught a lot of the people that Alexander um, colleagues of Alexander. The, the Delsart method, at least the Delsart method of Camille Delsart, Francois's younger brother was very much in the air in theatrical circles. And uh, that, that, that version of Delsart was a sort of a, um, an early version of Delsart. It didn't include uh, one of Delsart's uh, methods of teaching that involved using, using illustrations. But as I've just learned from a preliminary chat with you, it did include directions of some sort and i think it might be good to start with that what what directions would have been out there in camille's teaching that alexander would have known about yes i must make um, a comment sure because in fact um when camille del south left france mm -hmm. it was a time when his uh, brother was still was still teaching the gestural training Mm -hmm. he, he abandoned that and in his later life because of the opposition and because uh, of the fact that his pupils were using his gestural training to, in fact, compete in power with their voice. And he was uh, appalled by this. Mm -hmm. But when Camille Delsart arrived in Tasmania, it is quite sure that he had the whole gestural training system, which means that, contrary to what you just said, he had everything. He had the instructions, what we call orders or directions uh -huh. but, uh, nowadays, but he also had the illustrations. Oh, I didn't he realize he had, had the, the tableau. I didn't realize he had, he had the illustrations. Yeah, because the tableau, we are quite sure that they were uh, in full uh, use uh, around 1840. And uh, Mr. Camille Delsart left France in 1857, so he had the full thing. Mm -hmm. So I think that uh, he transmitted it to uh, all his pupils and some of them, uh, well, I I'm not sure one of them was F.M. Alexander, but uh, it's quite sure that Alexander, well, from what he wrote later on, it's quite sure that he knew the whole system. 
Right. So well, it, do, it does seem not it, to use the the the, um, the designs, the, the illustration, the tableau, mm-hmm. but uh, he knew about them. So it it does seem like it's not really likely that uh, Camille Dassart and Alexander actually met because I, I believe Camille died in eighteen seventy seven. Yes, and Alexander would have been eight years old at that point. Yes, that's a bit too young. A little yeah. too young, but his influence was definitely out there in 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 theatrical circles. He was very well known, from what I understand, in theatrical circles in Australia. Yes. And, he was absolutely famous, and he used he did use the illustrations and for the gestural training. Is that right? Yeah. But, yes. Okay. One thing is that he didn't have the uh, the knack of his brother because his brother was able to to draw to draw you from at first sight and propose a different combination of uh, movement of the part of your torso. Mm-hmm. But uh, um, Camille had certainly uh, examples of the, okay. right. uh, the picture his brother was using as a method of mm-hmm. uh, as a pedagogy. So it's but when Alexander him um started his own version of Delsart method if you want to call it that did he use those illustrations do we know if he no. did he did There is no record ever and he never taught talked about it so right. Right. and none of his students have ever uh, well uh, like at the the impression or uh, received such a, such a training. So no, Alexander did apparently not use them at but he, all. But he did, um, I believe, from what we've talked about earlier, he did take on or adapted or whatever Del Sartre's directions. Is that correct? Yes. And, and could well, he, s- he adapted the idea of the Del Sartre directions, really. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, that is, uh, uh, I think, that grew out to be a problem later on, and that problem became uh, the solution of that problem became the hands-on solution. And just to just to jump ahead, that problem was that the directions were really statements about what you wanted to achieve, not how to get to it. Is that was that the basic problem with them? Yes, they were ends. He, he were he was end gaining. He was end gaining <laughs> of <yeah>. all people. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. Okay. So, could you say? Could, could we then go into a little bit about Del Sartre and directions, and to go go back in time a bit to kind of what they were? What was their purpose? Yeah. How, how, what, what were they? I think the best thing, I, I'm, I'm afraid it's going to be a bit lengthy, but the best thing would be to describe. Uh, the, the Delsart uh, discovery. Okay. Uh, well, the, Des- the Delsart problem. Delsart lost his voice. He was a fantastic singer. He lost his voice through singing lessons he received in the Royal College of Music. Uh huh. You know, he couldn't sing anymore. The doctors <laughs> said you are not going to sing anymore. And uh, what what we know is that he, he felt pain in the larynx mm-hmm. every time he was singing high notes. Mm-hmm. So. That it's all this started because he started to find a better way to use the larynx. Mm-hmm. You know, it was uh, it was trying to sing in a way that did not cause pain. Mm-hmm. So when he started, it's very clear because he's he's, he's written about this. Is uh, he was following his sensory appreciation. Mm-hmm. He would the idea or the concept was uh, the absence of pain uh, should mean better functioning. 
That's how he started. Yeah. Well, that Good. was his initial assumption. If I yes, can do something to reduce the amount of pain, it's probably a good thing. Yes. Oh, excellent. Uh huh. Okay. But then he discovered that it was wrong. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> uh, wrong. Well, no, no, but it's very interesting. Yeah. You know, sometimes yeah. you have to go through difficulties in order to right. to get to the real thing. Mm-hmm. So, um, well, the, the difference was that uh, he had to change from what we call subjective work, uh, according to what I feel this is better, according to what I feel this is painful. Yeah. So he went to obje- what we call objective work. So objective work started because he noticed that his larynx was very highly placed. Uh-huh. So to notice that, you have to look at yourself in a mirror. Ah, uh, okay. Good. See? Uh-huh. Otherwise, you, well, we have no feeling of the movement of our, our larynx. Mm-hmm. We don't know where our, our larynx is unless we look in a mirror. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And because he was a musician, he drew a comparison with a brass instrument where you have a mouthpiece, that's the larynx, a tube, that's the pharynx, and the bell, that is the back of the mouth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he noticed that um, the distance from the mouthpiece, his larynx, to the bell, the back of the mouth, was very, very short. And uh, out of that, he, he got uh, a fantastic, what I call an in, in intuition, because uh, it's proven now by science, but at the time, I can't understand how he, he can write something like this, because he experienced a destructive shockwave. Well, which, which is exactly what we should call it, because when you've got um, um, a shortening of a mouthpiece, is a, a narrowing of a passage of hair. After that, the air accelerates, mm-hmm. and if the length of the tube behind the mouthpiece is too small, mm-hmm. then you get what we call a shock wave, which is a destructive uh, um, impact on uh, the the system itself. Yeah. This would be a shock wave going back towards the speaker's own throat. Uh, yes, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, well, that, uh, that's that's kind of basic physics, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yeah. Yes. Well, basic. No, I wouldn't say basic. It is physics. It is physics. It's, yeah. It's not. It's not that basic. Yeah. Well, so. Um, there is also something else is that uh, he, he had teaching lessons, so he knew about the, the ideas at the time about uh, the voice production. And there is one idea about voice production that was uh, a scientific truth of the time, was peddled by every singing teacher's. Peddled mm-hmm. means is a dis, uh, discrimination there because uh, it, it's not true. But that as you sing higher notes, the larynx moves upwards. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you if you try, if you see yourself in the mirror and you sing, you will notice that uh, uh, any untrained person, when singing, eye notes will raise the larynx. Right. As a result, the larynx is constricted mm-hmm. because the movement of the larynx, in fact, is uh, is is a movement that is uh, not for singing. It's a movement for deglutition, what we call swallowing. Mm-hmm. You know? And what happened is that uh, the larynx has to move upwards when you swallow something in order not for what you swallow to go into your lungs. Mm-hmm. 
Okay. So the restriction, the narrowing of the larynx is something of nature. Right. It's to prevent you from choking. Right. Okay. Yeah, but yep. uh, his larynx was very high already. So every time he would sing high notes, he would go higher. It would become constricted. He would get a depression of the larynx and he would suffer from it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the problem he had is that it was a problem with the scientific truth. Because he said, well, if the larynx moves upward to produce high notes, I am done. Mm-hmm. Because uh, he didn't uh, have the scope for doing that. Yeah, because my yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So I'm going to get, to get the shock wave because yeah. uh, that's the way it is. So he didn't trust the scientific truth. Mm-hmm. He wanted to experiment to be sure. So that's how it started. That's how you understand that he had to go from subjective, how do I feel, to objective work, which is working with one or two mirrors. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So he he started, and his point was to try to sing an ascending tune while lowering the larynx. I see. You know? Yeah, we uh-huh. call that a conscious direction of a movement. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's you have to to be careful here because it's quite something. It's an interesting movement to consider because if you try. So you go into in front of a mu- of a mirror, and you st- and try to sing something uh, low, and then you go higher, and then your sensations are going to tell you that this is impossible. Your larynx has to move higher when you sing higher notes. That's what you know, mm-hmm. and he didn't accept it. <laughs> mm-hmm. What would he, what he posits here is that uh, maybe. Is a sensation where telling him the wrong thing. In that he thought it was going higher when it was not going higher? Is that no, what you're saying? No, 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 no. It's much more complex than this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> In the sense that when he was uh, singing higher notes, he could see his larynx go higher, mm-hmm. but he refused it. And okay. he said, I'm going to try and modify this. Mm-hmm. I'm going to continue because he wanted to save his voice and he, he understood that there was no way he could save it if the larynx continued to move higher. Right. So he didn't accept the f- uh, brutal fact of what he was seeing in the mirror. Mm-hmm. Yeah? Okay. And that's when it becomes very interesting because then you have to understand something. He has to inhibit what his feelings, what his sensations first have to tell him. Mm-hmm. Then there is a second point that he's making, and it's a making about uh, something that is quite different from sensation. It is feelings, because his feelings were that uh, he had to, to, in fact, lift his larynx in order to think higher notes. Yeah, mm-hmm. come back to the same thing. Right. So he, he went on watching people, and he was watching their larynx all the time. You know, yeah. he wanted to see when do people raise their larynx, and he discovered something. Well, apart from the fact that we lo- we um, lift the larynx every time we swallow or every time we vomit, he's quite clear about this. I didn't check, but um, I, I believe it's it's true because otherwise the vomit would go into your lungs. Mm-hmm. So the larynx has to raise. Yeah, mm-hmm. 
But then he discovered something which we call psychophysical control. And it's very simple. He was watching a man leaving, uh, lifting heavy luggage, you know? Mm-hmm. And he noticed that before bending and lifting each load, yeah, mm-hmm. the man would uh, lift his larynx. But the larynx was lifted in proportion to the idea of weight the man had in his mind before trying to lift the box. Right. Yes, that's quite interesting. Uh-huh. Which means that, uh, uh, in accordance with the calculated effort, you raise your larynx. So he saw that, and he saw something else too that helped him quite a lot. He saw that when the man was calculating effort, he was moving his larynx up and he was also shortening his torso. Uh There was not one move. There was related moves. So he straight away had the idea that uh, if his idea of singing high notes was that it was difficult he would raise his larynx. Yeah? And the higher mm-hmm. notes, the higher effort. So the higher he would raise his larynx. Mm-hmm. So he started to play a mental game with himself, telling himself that, no, it was not difficult. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. It's a strange thing. Yeah. I've tried it in front of a mirror. I can tell you it's, it's killing. It's <laughs> like, you, don't, you wonder why he called this work? Well, because it is, uh, it's arduous work. Mm-hmm. Because you have to, uh, you have to create a mental instruction to generate simultaneous movements of different parts of the anatomical structure mm-hmm. uh, that are contrary to what you feel, mm-hmm. contrary to what you sense, mm-hmm. and um, and in the end, in the mirror, he could see that uh, by the um, the work he done is done on his torso. He found a way to lower the larynx while he was singing higher notes. He had disproved uh, a scientific law of the time. Well, I'm afraid that this law is still in is still in is still right. current nowadays. You know, because there are not many Del Sartes around to right. <laughs> right. to do it. And did he do that with a, a direction? Did he have a direction to do that with, or was it force of will? What was going on there? Well, he had to direct his will in a rational way. This sentence is not from Del Sartre. It's directly from Alexander. Right. Well, I mean, everything you've just talked about is almost out of the Alexander playbook, really. I mean, the idea of that guy lifting boxes and and kind of predetermining what what they're going to weigh and creating the necessary, what he believed to be the necessary tension to lift it, is exactly analogous to Alexander being on stage and thinking, well, hey, it's now it's time for me to yeah. recite and get my voice out to the back of the auditorium. And as he discovered, as he says himself, he discovered pretty early that that happened before the first sound was made. Yeah. 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 Wow. So, so Del Sartre was in a very similar situation to Alexander's. Oh yeah, and, <laughs> it's so similar that and it's it's almost like uh, Alexander is Del Sartre Jr. here. I mean, it's it's amazing. And Del, so Del Sartre, 
I th- I think um, what I'd like to do is is kind of end this little part of the story fairly soon and and yeah. and start another podcast to continue it, but but to to kind of cap it off, it's it, you're saying that Del Sartre did come up with a direction or directions that enabled him to avoid the shortening of his stature and the depression of his larynx, right? Yes. And that it was a bit of a struggle, but he he did it, right? He succeeded. Yes. And, I mean, that parallel, I mean, that takes us pretty much right up to what – I mean, that's very, very similar to what Alexander's own story is up to a certain point. So maybe this would be a good place – to bring this conversation to a close, and then we're the next our next podcast, which we're yeah. going to record in a minute or two, but is is going to be what what we're going to go on in that in Del Sartre's story and Alexander's story. So yes. um, we'll close for now. My my guest today has been uh, Jean Doe Massoero, uh, an Alexander teacher in Montpelier, France. And uh, Jean Doe, thank you so much for this. Well, you're welcome.